Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Times are sad. We are running out of Plato's Atlantis. And I feel really sad thinking about the possibility of running out of information. After all, there is only a finite amount of information out there, and eventually... Don't worry, I still have so much more to offer you. And we can always refer back to Plato's works to cross-reference facts. I am immensely enjoying this journey together, so thank you for all the joy you've brought me. The first time I went to college, I wanted to be a forensic psychologist. I'm really good at attention to detail, and for those Meyer Briggs fans out there, I am the rare INFJ. Alas, I went to school for computer science, but my heart truly is in the ancient past. I fantasize about creating ancient history in VR. I think it'd be really cool to remake the Iliad and the Odyssey. You could pick your character and play from their perspective, all the way up to their inevitable death. Then you could be able to pick a different character and choose to continue the story from there. Odysseus, of course, would have the best chance, as he is the star of the stories. However, if you played as Zeus or Poseidon, I think we'd probably have to now label this VR game as adult. As it's Zeus and Poseidon making babies that get us all in this mess to begin with. Speaking of being a god and having the ability to shapeshift, uh, such as a swan, or a golden shower. I would think that you could be able to shapeshift the potent parts into something else, right? Like water or wine, maybe even chocolate. Anyway, for this episode, we will learn about the different plants and animals on the island of Atlantis. We will then talk about the Younger Dryas event and how unlikely the Atlantean-Egyptian-Athenian War happened during that time. I'm going to use the help of just one of our favorite authors. Plato, a classical Greek school headmaster and philosopher, who is our primary source for Atlantis, living roughly around 425 BCE. The story of Atlantis was written around 360 BCE. I am pretty sure these Atlanteans had really good weather. I mean, that's what made their society utopian, right? That it was sheltered from the northern wind and had harvests twice a year. They also had gardens and they had groves of trees. They had aqueducts, and they had baths. They also had horses, and horse races. Here's Plato talking about it in the following quote. There were places of exercise, some for men and others for horses, in both of the two islands formed by the zones. So this wouldn't be Plato's island. It would be the other two, like land zone A and land zone B. Back to Plato. 
In the center of the larger of the two islands, there was a race course set apart and one stadium in width and length. The race course was allowed to extend all around the island for horses to race in. I guess this would be a good time to explain how the ancient Greeks saw horses. A horse to the ancient Greeks is equivalent to a fancy imported sports car. For Americans, let's use a Mercedes-Benz. People name their children after this car. It is the status symbol of wealth and prestige. It is considered worth a good deal of money, and most people could buy a house with the cost of one. So, when thinking about horses in ancient Greek, I want you to picture an expensive, fancy sports car, limited to those with money and power. When Plato talks about that race course being in the center of the larger of the two islands, I presume he means the median of land zone B. So remember, that was three stadia in width. So one stadia in the median would have a race course, but it was one stadia in length and width, so that's a square. But you're also allowed to extend this horse race all the way around the band of the island, but it was always in the median. So smack in the middle was a horse race. It went through the merchant shops and the residential areas. In my mind, I picture people placing bets, cheering their presumed victors. The Atlanteans were also situated in the foothills of mountains. I happen to live in a place that is also surrounded by mountains, and we are mostly sheltered from the weather around. So when Plato says the following, it reminds me a lot of the Pacific Northwest. The Atlanteans dwelled in the regions on the edge of the ocean and inhabiting a fertile territory. The whole country was very elevated and rainy on the side of the sea. But the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain. The plain was surrounded by mountains that descended towards the sea. This part of the island looked towards the south and was sheltered from the north. The surrounding mountains were celebrated for their number, size, and beauty. Within the mountains, there were many wealthy villages of country folk. There were rivers, lakes, and meadows, supplying food enough for every animal, wild or tame. There were various sorts of wood abundant for each and every kind of work. This last paragraph suggests that outside of the main city of Atlantic City, there were villages and farms and they were located all throughout the mountains. Those mountains have rivers, lakes, meadows, and different types of trees. This is indicative of a milder climate, as the rivers and lakes were not frozen and the trees seemed to grow abundantly. Plato makes reference to animals, but let's see what kind of animals he says. There were sufficient maintenance and provisions for all other sorts of animals living in mountains, on plains, in lakes, in marshes, and in rivers both tame and wild animals. Moreover, there were a great number of elephants on the island. There were enough provisions for even that which is the largest and most voracious of all. And this is where everyone gets the elephants of Atlantis from. It seems to be the only animal beyond snakes that seems to be mentioned by Plato. 
This is good because there are a limited number of areas where elephants are native. So what all grew in this temperate plain that allowed harvests twice a year? The blessings which beheld the light of the sun, all plants grew and thrived on that land. The earth freely furnished them all the fragrant things there are now in the earth, whether roots or herbage or herbage or woods or essences which can distill from fruit and flower. They brought forth in abundance all sorts of cultivated fruit, both dry and hard rind. The dry sort, which we call them by the common name pulse, which us, we call them by the common name beans. Let's start over. The dry sort, which we call them by the common name beans, has given us nourishment in any other which we use for food. The fruits that had a hard rind supplied drinks and meats and ointments, but spoil with keeping. They also had a good store of chestnuts, and similar, which furnished pleasure and amusement. They had the pleasant kind of dessert with which we console ourselves after dinner when we are tired of eating. Sadly, not much else can be told about what Plato's Atlantis looks like. We did have 10 episodes of Atlantis explanation, which I would say is a success because the entire story of Plato's Atlantis can be read in less than an hour, though it is confusing and requires undivided attention. So now, all we're left is the war between Egypt, Athens, and the Atlanteans. Let's read what happens. Remember that we're reading this through the eyes of the Egyptian priests. For these histories tell of a mighty power, which, unprovoked, made an expedition against the whole of Europe and Asia, and to which your city put an end. This power came forth out of the Atlantic Ocean, for in those days the Atlantic was navigable, and there was an island situated in front of the straits, which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. So here's a good old debate. What do you think in front of the pillars means? Remember, these stories are being told from Lower Egypt or geographically Northern Egypt. Ancient Egypt was separated by Upper and Lower Egypt. Upper Egypt was the older Egypt and it was geographically located in Southern Egypt. Then the Egyptians moved up north and they called this Lower Egypt. I know it sounds confusing. That's the reason why I took the time to explain it. So here we are geographically in Northern Egypt. We're looking out at the Mediterranean Sea and to the left over there we're pointing is the Pillars of Heracles. Where's the front? Personally, I see the front as being within the Mediterranean, if I'm looking at it from that perspective. People have been saying the front because they're looking at it over here from America. And then of course it would be located in front of the Straits from that perspective, right? So what would beyond the pillars mean then to us? Would that mean inside of the Mediterranean? If this is the case, then beyond the pillars would mean into the Atlantic Ocean to both the Egyptians and the Greeks. Anyway, back to Plato. 
the island was larger than Libya and Asia Minor put together, or modern-day Turkey, and was the way to other islands. And from these, you might pass to the whole of the opposite continent, which surrounded the true ocean. For this sea, which is within the Straits of Heracles, is only a harbor, having a narrow entrance. But the other is a real sea, and the surrounding land must truly be called a boundless continent. Plato is talking about the entire land of Atlas in this sentence, as we have already decided that the plain of Atlantis was about the size of Spain or a little smaller than Turkey. And now the entirety of Titan Atlas's land was bigger than ancient Libya and Turkey put together. This must include the mountains, rivers, lakes, and marshes. Personally, I think he's talking about all of Africa here. Ancient Libya seems to stop at the Sahara, but Africa is huge and could be considered a boundless continent, especially to those who could not fly nor have satellite images. Back to Plato. Now this island of Atlantis, there was a great and wonderful empire, which had rule over the whole island and several others, and over parts of the continent. And furthermore, the men of Atlantis had subjugated parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles, as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyrrhenia. Great and wonderful. Isn't that what the wand maker called Voldemort and Harry Potter great and wonderful? I have a hard time believing that people in general just believe and accept that they're the baddies. I think everyone justifies their behavior as being right when launching these campaigns. Is killing an animal inherently bad? Do we justify it in the name of science or for food or even in the case of the ancients? For sacrifices, killing, just for the sake of killing, is looked negatively upon, but give it a justification, and suddenly the viewpoint shifts. What caused the Atlanteans to launch a war with Egypt, or even Athens? What was their justification? Anyway, back to Plato. This vast power, gathered into one, endeavored to subdue at a blow to our country and yours and the whole of the region within the Straits. Alright, so I thought that all the kings hung out in Atlantic City and they were already united. Why are they gathering in a one unless they branched out and became other tribes? Back to Plato. And then Solon, your country shone forth in excellence of her virtue and strength among all mankind. She was preeminent in courage and military skill and was the leader of the Hellenes. And when the rest fell from her, being compelled to stand alone, after having undergone the very extremity of danger, she defeated and triumphed over the invaders and preserved from slavery those of us who were not yet subjugated and generously liberated all the rest of us who dwelt within the pillars. Hmm. Subjugation and slavery. Where have I heard that one before? Oh, right. When Marina, queen of the Libyan Amazons, subjugated CERN and put to sword all the boys from puberty upwards and put into slavery the women. The Atlanteans were good and just until the divinity became too polluted with the mortal admixture. 
Once Athens defeated Poseidon's chosen people, Poseidon unleashed his wrath, and him, being the god of earthquakes and storms, here's Plato, but afterwards, after the war, there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and, in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men, in a body, sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis, in like manner, disappeared into the depths of the sea, for which reason the sea in those parts is impassable and impenetrable, because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the substance of the island. I know I've brought this quote up before in previous episodes, but why would just the warlike men of Athens disappear into the earth? If the destruction happened at Athens, why would it just target the warlike men? Wouldn't it target everyone? So again, I think it's the warlike men, they defeated the invaders, and then they go back to ransack their city like woohoo, we won, and then the earthquake hits. And all the warlike men of Athens sank into the earth, and the city, in like manner, sank into the sea. So when did this war take place? Let's hear about it from Plato. 9,000 was the sum of years which had elapsed since the war. It was said to have taken place between those who dwelt outside the pillars and those who dwelt within them. On one side, there was Athens, and it was reported to have been the leader and to have fought out the war. On the other side were the ten kings of Atlantis. Atlantis was a territory greater in extent than Libya and Asia Minor combined. How I see this is the Atlanteans had launched a war. They had already taken over parts of Europe up to Tyrrhenia. They've already captured it. And they were working their way down towards Egypt. Athens found out about it and came to the rescue of the Egyptians. This is where people get the 11,500 BCE date for the fall of Atlantis. Personally, I think there's just one zero too many. I used to take this date seriously, and for years, I tried to make this work. Sometimes, the simplest answer is usually the right one. So how many deviations can we make and still stay true to Plato's works? This is the question that I always have to ask myself when reading other people's theories. The more we deviate, the less it's Plato's works. At what point does it stop being Plato's Atlantis and a new person's Atlantis? For example, making this podcast and sharing my views that is now Tori's Atlantis based on the works of Plato and crew. I think when looking at the different theories of Atlantis, we should go into this trying to prove them correct. So let's talk about 11,500 BCE. We get that date from when Solon went to visit Egypt and he was alive approximately 338 BCE to 558 BCE. Let's make it an easy middle and say 600 BCE. 600 BCE minus 9,000 years lands us at 11,500 BCE. During 11,500 BCE, we were in a mini ice age called the Younger Dryas. This event lasted roughly from 12,900 BCE to 11,700 BCE. And then the Earth began warming again. 
I'm going to use the help of Wikipedia, but I'm going to paraphrase to make this a bit easier to understand. The Earth has undergone many different atmospheric changes, and those changes are characterized as named epochs. We are currently in what is called the Warmer Holocene Epoch, and this started around 11,650 BCE. The epoch prior to this was called the Pliocene Epoch. In archaeology, this time frame coincides with the final stages of the Upper Paleolithic in many areas. The Younger Dryas was the most recent and longest of several interruptions to the gradual warming of Earth's climate. The change was relatively sudden, taking place in decades, and resulted in a decline of temperatures in Greenland by 4 to 10 degrees Celsius, or 7.2 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit, and advances of glaciers and drier conditions over much of the temperate northern hemisphere it is thought to have been caused by a decline in the strength of the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, which transports warm water from the equator towards the North Pole, and a turn thought to have been caused by an influx of fresh cold water from North America to the Atlantic. The Younger Dryas was a period of climate change, but the effects were complex and variable. In the southern hemisphere, in some areas of the northern hemisphere, such as southeastern North America, a slight warming occurred. The current theory for Atlanteans was that there was a sudden change was caused by a meteor impact. The Paleolithic period of human development is marked by the rudimentary use of stone tools, or better known as the Stone Age. This would definitely be a time before ships were yet invented. Humans were living in caves, and probably had the use of animal hide for clothing. However, they had very basic tools, like a chisel or a stone axe. Anyone who's ever played a survival game knows how limiting and beneficial a stone axe can be. We are on day one of our Atlantis survival game at this point in human history. So even if a meteor impact caused the destruction of Atlantis, the rest of the world is not advanced enough to make ice-breaking ships to even make it to the harbor city of Atlantis. Because remember in this line, the entry canal and the largest of the harbors were full of vessels and merchants coming from all parts. From their numbers, the merchants were noisy with the sound of human voices, with bangs and clatters of all sorts night and day. The docks were full of triremes and naval stores and all things were quite ready for use. To accept the 9,000 years ago theory, that would mean we would have to dismiss at least two others, such as any mention of other places having ships, like Athens or even Egypt, and a temperate climate where they could harvest the earth twice a year. Even if Atlantis was immune to the very cold from being in the mountains, they had visitors from all parts that arrived by boat. Those boats, had to be sturdy enough to transport merchant cargo. I tell you, it's those darn ships and chariots that keep on throwing me off. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything.
Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. So each leader was to supply for the war a total of 18 people and four horses. And again, a leader was defined as owning a plot of land in the island of Atlantis. So Plato says that there is a grand total of 10,000 chariots. So if each leader needed to provide one-sixth of a portion, that means there had to have been 60,000 plots of land. So this is going to give us a grand total of 1,080,000 people and 240,000 horses on 1,200 ships. Each ship would need to be capable of holding 900 people, 200 horses, and 8.33 chariots 